I want you to think back with me to a time when you were more hungry or thirsty than any other time you can remember. For me, it was hiking one day in the Superstition Mountains in, uh, in Mesa, Arizona. I'd seen them off from a distance. I wanted to go for a hike. And so I began climbing up this trail called the Siphon Gulch Trail that went up to this huge cliff called the Flatiron. And it was a great trail. And as I got into it, though, I began to realize it was a lot longer and a lot more steep than I had planned on. Well, I was getting into it. I was enjoying it. And I was only an hour or so away from, from the top of the cliff. So I just kept on going. But I had not planned to bring enough water with me that day. I didn't bring very much at all. And, uh, and so by the time I got up to the cliff, I was parched. And by the time I made it back down to my to my vehicle, <laughs> well, I don't remember a time I was more more thirsty. Now, there is an unpleasantness about that kind of thirst. It's not something you, you want to seek usually. It's almost a, a primal worry within your body. I have to have this. And, and it can be that way with extreme hunger, of course, too. We don't really experience it that much here in our country, but if you ever have, you, you know it just consumes you. So what can Jesus mean when he tells us, as we continue to go through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, what can Jesus mean when he tells us that blessed are the hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled? Well, Let's explore that if we can. Now, I had originally thought I was going to do several of these Beatitudes together, but I want to just do this one today uh, because it allows us to explore it more deeply. But it also gives us a few minutes to explore the overall scope and, and, and sequence of the Beatitudes and how it fits in. Because in many ways, this Beatitude here is kind of the hinge of the door that helps explain so much of what's going on. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, there seems to be a logical progression to these first four Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit means recognizing our bankruptcy before God and our, and our nothingness apart from the Creator. Mourning here means mourning over the ways we have failed this God, the ways that we have allowed sin to creep into so much of our lives. We mourn for ourselves and our sin and, and also for the sins of the world. And the person who understands these things about themselves is going to have a certain meekness about them because they're not trying to get ahead in the world's opinion. They're more focused on God. They're meek and they're humbled and trusting towards God because they know they have no claims and they deserve nothing. And yet God is still incredibly good to them. Now, it's this kind of person who's focused on God and they begin longing very naturally then. They begin longing for God's righteousness. So there's a, a progression here, right? It's the person who hungers for righteousness that has also been poured in spirit and mourned over their unrighteousness. And, and they're meek before God because they see that. And yet that very meekness wants them or drives them to want this, this God and his righteousness more. Now, the second thing we, we see here, there's actually a division between the first four and the, the last four, the Beatitudes. Um, I kind of put it like this. 
if I could put it in something of a chart. You've got the first four here, and then you've got the second four. But if you're reading this in the Greek language, something immediately strikes you. First of all, you're, you're struck by the fact that both of these columns, as it were, both of these columns of four Beatitudes have exactly 36 words in them. The second thing that, would note, that you would note if you're really paying attention is that the first and the last have the same reward or blessing attached to them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it forms something of, of a bracket or more technically an inclusio uh, that tells us that all the rest are kind of tied into this. And then the third thing we would recognize is that the fourth beatitude and the eighth seem to mirror each other in some way. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse are in the fourth beatitude are those who are persecuted for righteousness in the eight. So presumably they actually found some righteousness because they are now being persecuted for that. Now, if we look at all this together, then I think we could come up with these four items to highlight here. The first beatitude has a promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and so does the last. This is created in inclusio. This tells us that the Beatitudes, and indeed the whole Sermon of the Mount, to which they are a prelude, are about the kingdom of heaven. This suggests that all the Beatitudes are promising the kingdom of heaven to people, with Beatitudes 1 and 8 making the promise in general terms, and Beatitudes 2 through 7 unpacking what that means in concrete ways, appropriate to the people involved. Third, the emphatic focus of the Beatitudes is that of righteousness. And in Matthew's gospel, that always means holy and ethical action. This is a non-negotiable sign of the kingdom. And you see that especially in, in um, later on in the same chapter in 520, where Jesus tells us, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom, enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's stop there for a second. If we know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees, this seems uh, not like good news, but instead like an incredible burden. The Pharisees especially were known for doing all kinds of, of ceremonial and uh, very much outward-oriented and very minute attention to the law. They were known for giving them whole, whole selves to being righteous or holy. These are people who would tithe a portion of their mints and their spices. These are people who would have rules about how often you would wash your hands, three times, four times before each meal. They had rules about everything. So when, when we hear this, especially when we put ourselves on the sandals of the people who heard this first, and Jesus is saying our righteousness, unless it exceeds their righteousness or the scribes and Pharisees, we won't get in. That does not seem like good news. That seems like bad news. But here, the last thing we see helps us understand why this is good news. Because the righteousness that Jesus is talking about will indeed go past, exceed, transcend, be of a completely different kind than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had an outward righteousness. Jesus described them in, in, one, um, in one verse as whitewashed tombs. Now, that seems an odd thing to say, uh, in our culture at least. But back then, people were very familiar with it. 
if you had a tomb, and it might be a, a stone coffin, it might be um, something more simple or sometimes more elaborate, what you would often do is you would take lime, basically, and you would whitewash that with their equivalent of white paint. Now, you would do that in order to mark it, as it were, so that people did not stumble upon that tomb. Because if they stumbled upon the tomb, then they became ceremonially unclean, and you wanted to avoid that. So that was the contrast Jesus was talking about. On the outside, it's it's white. It's uh, It seems spotless. It seems clean. But in the inside, you have a dead, rotting body with all the things that go along with that. And Jesus is saying that is the righteousness of those who seek outward, external righteousness and change of their behavior, but on the inside have not been transformed. You see, if we back up here just a second, we, we notice something. Jesus consistently is talking about a righteousness that begins on the inside and then works its way out. Where, does he, where do we see that? Well, we see it in, in some of the verses he has mentioned. Uh, but we also see that even right here in the way that this is set up, it's almost as if it's paralleling um, the words of Jesus of the great command. The two great commands, Jesus echoing the Old Testament, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, of the same kind, flowing out of it, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Jesus would later put it, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Wash the, um, wash the inside of the cup and when you do that, the outside will, will very naturally be clean. So to go back to uh, our points here, the eight Beatitudes can be viewed as two stanzas, with the first focusing on inward transformation before God, and the second as outward righteousness toward God. This reminds us that true righteousness is first inward and then outward. Righteousness is first a gift that Jesus the Righteous One gives us if we are humble enough to come to him and seek it. Righteousness is first of all a gift, and then a calling, and then a destiny. Righteousness is first a gift, and then a calling, and then a destiny. What I mean by that is this. We're not righteous on our own. None of us are. Romans 3 says, there are none righteous, no, not one. And yet that same chapter, Romans 3, goes on to talk about how through the sacrifice of Jesus and the gift of the cross, we can be given a righteousness from God in which our guilt is placed upon him and his righteousness is placed upon us. Therefore, righteousness becomes, first of all, a gift. And then second, these uh, were reminded here, these Beatitudes and the whole Sermon of the Mount describe this righteous life then that would be fulfilled in us. It's a calling to us, but it's also in a sense a promise of our destiny. This is ultimately what we will be like. And this is why we should focus on building these things in right now. So why should we seek to be hungry for righteousness? Well, righteousness is exactly what we are created for. It's simply being the right kind of person. Now, how do we get there, though? It's interesting. I mean, it's it's to hear all this and, and to know this about hunger and thirsty for righteousness and how it fits in. But if we 
ask a deeper question, the more personal question, we might come up with something like this. How hungry am I for this kind of righteousness? How hungry am I? How much do I think about it? How much do I pursue about it? Do I, do I lose sleep about this or other things that don't really matter as much? Am I focused on, on becoming more righteous? Am I really hungering for that? Or am I not, if I was honest with myself? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and yet the Spirit of God has woken us inside, we ask the second question then. How can I become more hungry? What does that look like? Well, I always suggest two things here. To stimulate our spiritual appetite, as it were, to become more hungry. First, recognize what you're really hungry for. Recognize what you are really hungry for. What I mean by this is we all hunger and thirst for things. But very often, we're hungering for God and his righteousness, being rightly connected with him and rightly being who we're supposed to be. And yet we don't recognize it as such. Because that's such a, an abstract and also a very inward and spiritual concept. So very often what we think we're hungry for is something much less. Part of our growth in the kingdom is recognizing that every true need and desire of our heart is really desire for God and his righteousness. Augustine puts it so well, as he always does, perhaps the best line ever written outside the scriptures. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are hungry until they find fulfillment in you, God. Think through what occupies your dreams and your anxieties. At your core, at the core there, you will find a desire for something only God can fulfill. And he fulfills that by allowing his grace that got you into the kingdom to be applied to all the needs, all the things that you think you're hungry for. We always need either a deeper understanding of God's grace, or maybe put it another way, deeper, a deeper drink of that grace. Now, that's all abstract, so let me, let me see if I can flesh it out here a little bit. I may feel a need, I may feel a hunger for more success in my career, or more success in my schoolwork, my academic career, some extracurricular activity. I examine that hunger before God, and I find really it's a hunger to feel important and special. My success in my career or sports or whatever is simply the way I think I would feel more special and important. Now, the desire to feel special and important isn't wrong. It's part of the way God made us because, in fact, we are important and special. <clears throat> but using achievement to get there won't work in the long run because there's always someone who is more successful and has better achievement in that area than we do. So what do we do? What should we do? We find our happiness, our worth, our specialness, our value. We find that in the fresher understanding of the gospel, a reminder of the gospel, that in the end, it's only God's evaluation of me that matters. And the way that he has responded to me in love at the cross shows me that his heart is still towards me, that I am special, I am valuable in his eyes, the eyes of the only person that matter. And it's living out that, or, or more properly, letting that transform 
all those fears about who I am and whether I'm good enough. That is what brings the big difference here. Now, here's the second thing. I said that the way to get hungry was, first of all, to recognize what you're really hungry for, to, to do some inner examination about that. Here's the second thing. Refuse to spoil your appetite. Refuse to spoil your appetite. I choose that phrase, of course, from our common experience as children and then later on as parents. One of the parents has worked hard for several hours to prepare a, a delicious, nutritious meal. And they've got a chicken in the oven, they've got vegetables on the stove, they've got bread and fruit already on the table. And the child comes in and he wants some, he wants some potato chips or, or cookies or, or some, sort of, some sort of candy. And, and what does the parent tell them? No. Why? Because you'll spoil your appetite. Now, if this child is both unwise and somewhat of a philosopher, many philosophers are somewhat unwise, so it's not a rare combination, but if this child is a quasi-deep thinker, he, he may ask this question, wait a second, how will I spoil my appetite? Isn't that what chips and ice cream and these other foods are for, to satisfy my appetite? Why else do they exist? I mean, I've got hunger, they take the hunger away. What's the problem? Well, we know the problem, right? Even if the child doesn't. To satisfy one's appetite on junk food a half hour before supper is on the table is to not only ruin the shared social experience of that meal within the family, but it also keeps you from consuming what your body really needs, what it's really hungry for. Our spiritual appetite, in some ways, is like that physical appetite. Not in every way, of course, but in some ways. That's why Jesus could use the analogy that he did. And if we fill ourselves up with what is easy and what is quick and has no other virtues than it tastes good at the moment, we simply will not have the appetite for that which our soul really needs. Do you remember... When Jesus, in the Gospel of John, sat down with the Samaritan woman, he sat down at this well, and he used the well to introduce to her the offer of salvation, using the analogy of living waters, of fresh waters that can satisfy her soul. And finally, the woman says, oh, please, give me some of this water. She doesn't get yet what Jesus means. And so Jesus seems, or Jesus responds with what seems like a very odd way, uh, an odd turn of the conversation. She says, please give me some of this living water. And then he says, go get your husband. Now, the woman's a little abashed here because she then says to Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now, you're not married to. You don't have a husband. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Is he just rubbing her nose into her failures? Does that sound like Jesus? No, what he's doing here, he's getting her to understand her true need. In effect, he's saying to her, I want to give you the water. I want to give you the true water that will satisfy your soul. But the problem is that you've been drinking from the wrong well. And until you understand that, you won't receive, you won't even seek this kind of water that I'm talking about. You've been trying to find significance and security by attaching yourself to all these men. 
But I'm the only one. My gospel is the only thing that can give you that. You've been drinking from the wrong well. I can't help but feel that those words apply to areas of my life where I'm trying to find significance, where I'm trying to find security, when I'm trying to find specialness or even just pleasure uh, apart from God. Maybe you've tried to find that as well. You're trying to find, uh, tried to fill the emptiness with, with food or entertainment or pleasure or social media. These things aren't wrong in their place, of course. But are they spoiling your appetite for what you really need, what can really meet the needs and desires of your heart? Well, let's kind of end it with this question. If Jesus were sitting down at the well by you, if he were asking you this question, if he were asking you what well you've been drinking from or where you've been seeking to find what really only the living water can give you, what would he say? Probably not go bring your husband. Go bring your screens. Go bring your food. Let's talk about your struggle with pornography. Let's talk about your, your shopping, your, your, your buying. Let's look at the way that you do the things you do or, or, or drink the things that you do. Is Jesus being a control freak? No. If he was, he would hardly have gone to the cross for us. He is being a father, a shepherd, a wise friend, someone who loves us deeply. The one who, above all else, wants to give us what our heart is truly hungering for. And this is the promise of Jesus, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. I remember, going back to how I began this, when I finished that hike in the mountains of Arizona and got down uh, from, that, from that trail, headed to my car. I didn't have any water in the car because I wasn't being very smart that day, like I said. I headed to the nearest uh, gas station, and I think I drank my weight in Gatorade. And let me tell you, I don't remember anything tasting quite as good as Gatorade did that day because of how thirsty I was for that. And that's the promise of God. That's the promise of God. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in this way, with Jesus and through Jesus, those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of this kingdom will find fulfillment. They will find it sporadically and progressively in this life, and they will find complete, they will find permanent fulfillment of all their deepest desires when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom in truth and in power and in fullness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.